I the one speaking to you? I am he. May God bless to us that reading of his word. So today we're continuing our series looking at the nature of the church, particularly the nature of the Baptist church. And today we're exploring the theme of the worshipping community from John chapter 4. According to the YouGov poll last year, 2018, the most popular New Year's resolutions were, first of all, to exercise more, 59% of the UK population. 53% said they wanted to eat healthier in 2019. And 48% said they wanted to lose weight. YouGov poll, 2018. And this month's premier Christian, Christianity magazine, I'm, I subscribe to that magazine, for January 28, has a very interesting letter to the editor. And it reads this. Dear editor, it's the time of year when thoughts turn to New Year's resolutions. I am proud to say that I've never made these silly promises to myself. My one and only resolution is to worship the Lord our God in spirit and in truth. Well, that, that and a steadfast refusal to accept the continuing success of Mrs. Brown's boys. <laughs> As part of the former, I went to a special church worship event last week. The minister had promised that it would be full of all those classic hymns that are rarely sung now. And I must admit, I was thrilled and excited. However, I turned up only to discover that we were singing the likes of Charles Wesley, John Newton and Isaac Watts. I must confess that I found it hard to hide my disappointment that we are capitulating to these ultra-modern pieces of songwriting. Where was the Erasmus Alvarez or Nicholas Selnecker? I mean, not a word was in Latin. I was interested to read the headline in your most recent edition about Christian music having lost its way. Although you're entirely wrong, of course, it hasn't been quite the same since Bartholomew Ringwalt suffers, shuffled off his mortal coal. He was a, med a medieval uh, songwriter. I'm purchasing a full copy of his work for my church's worship leader, although I do admit that he may struggle to lay his hands on a lute. Yours worshipfully, Roger Devotional. It's tragic that worship has always been in the church an issue of debate and disagreement because the heart of worship is never about us, it's never about you, it's never about me. Worship, in essence, is us relating to our Father. Our focus should not be on you or me, but on God, the Father, the subject and the focus of our worship. And yet we see from John chapter 4 that worship has always been a contentious issue. Because John 4 highlights the division and vigorous debate that took, took, was taking place in Israel and Palestine around about the first century. In fact, it had been going on in that region for around about five, four to 500 years and carried on well into the new millennia. You see, the country of Israel had become factionalized and divided into a, a north and a south region, with the northern kingdom Israel breaking away from the southern kingdom Judah. Sound familiar? To form a northern kingdom with their capital in Samaria, whilst the original capital for the entire nation remained where it always been in Jerusalem, but now it remained just a capital for the southern kingdom, or Judah. The southern kingdom continued to worship around the temple built by Solomon in Jerusalem, and had a series of kings, some good, some bad. Most of them worshipped Yahweh or Jehovah, whilst others were immoral and compromised and allowed idol worship and paganism to creep into the worship of the Jews. 
However, the fate of the northern kingdom was far worse. As they no longer had access to Jerusalem for their true temple, they built their own temple on the heights of Mount Gerizim. And their faith was a watered-down version of the Jewish religion. All the future kings of the northern kingdom were bad and encouraged the people to worship other gods and other idols, and they diluted Israel's true religion into a syncretistic mishmash of the local religion, believing the motto that more is good. And so he took on more and more religions and became more and more watered down and syncretistic and merged with all the other local Canaanite religions. And God sent many prophets to both north and south, but especially to the north. But eventually, their evil ways of the northern kingdom brought about their own calamity and their own demise. And eventually they were besieged and overrun by the king of Assyria, who took around about 50 to 60% of the people from the northern kingdom to Assyria and repopulated Samaria and the northern kingdom with Assyrians who mixed and married with the local people. Over time, the name of the northern kingdom became synonymous with the fact that their capital was in Samaria and they became Samaritans, no longer Israel, but Samaritans. And they were despised by the people of Judah because they were no longer regarded as true Jews, but as half Assyrian and half Jewish. They didn't worship of a true place of worship. They worshipped on Mount, um, uh, Mount um, uh, Gerizim here. And this is the actual excavation, the archaeological excavation of the famous temple that the Samaritans built on the top of that mountain. Now the, Mount, the Samaritans tried to argue that this mountain, Mount Gerizim, was a true place of worship because they refused to recognize any of the Old Testament except for the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible. Therefore they threw out the Psalms, they threw out the Proverbs, and all the early histories, and all the books of the prophets, particularly because they're very critical of the Northern Kingdom. So to the Jews, the Samaritans were heretics. And to the Samaritans, the Jews were heretics. And the Samaritans said, the only place to worship is here, on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews said, no, the only place to worship, in fact, is on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem. It was a place of division. Yet Jesus was one who always tried to bring divisions and bring divided peoples close. And it's wonderful when you read the New Testament, of course, you find that one of his heroes is a Samaritan. From one of the most famous parables that most people remember. And in that parable, the people that are criticized are the religious people, the priests who ignore the poor and ignore the man who's been mugged. We walk on the other side of the world, other side of the road, and this Samaritan does the good thing and does the thing that humanity demands of him. And in John 4, we find Jesus is actually on his way from north to south. He's traveling down from Galilee. He's traveling down towards Judah. And as you can see, Samaria sits slack bang in the middle. And for most Jews, they would actually try and avoid. They'd go the longer way around to avoid going through Samaria rather than contaminate themselves with the heretical Samaritans. But Jesus wasn't bothered about that. He was going, he was, he was going trying to go as the crow flies. So he goes right through Samaria. And because he was going through a central route, he goes right past Mount Gerizim. And right on the side of the mountain is a village. And this is the village that Jesus comes to, where he meets and has the famous encounter with the Samaritan woman. 
And the story here is remarkable on many levels. First, it's remarkable because Jesus doesn't shun the Samaritan, the heretic. He talks to them. He goes, he's, he's open to everyone. He's not narrowed by his views or by the views of society. So we find him talking to a Samaritan. But secondly, it's not only a Samaritan he's talking to, it's a Samaritan woman. And that was yet another level down. Because rabbis don't speak to women. Why? Well, frankly, women aren't intelligent enough to understand what a rabbi is talking about. In the days of Jesus, there were no female disciples. Disciples, discipleship was limited to men. Because men or the people who went outside the home, the woman's sphere of influence was very much limited to within the home. These were very different times to our current time. So what Jesus is doing here is radical. He's speaking to a heretic. He's speaking to a, a female heretic. And what's even worse than that? She's not even a good female heretic. She is an immoral woman. She's the kind of woman that people shy away from. Remember in that encounter when Jesus meets a prostitute and the, and the Pharisees say, if he really was a prophet, he would know who he was speaking to and he wouldn't speak to her. Well, Jesus did know who he was speaking to. But he speaks to everyone. Because he wants to bring God's love to everyone. He's not limited by the barriers that you and I put up. He wants everyone to hear. And he knows because he is the son of God, everyone can hear because his God is mighty. Because he is mighty. And the gospel message can bring down the barriers. He's not bothered by the divisions that man puts up. He goes there to reach this woman. And so he's engaged in her in conversation and he's talking actually about the fact that um, she's just been married five times and that the man she's currently with is not even her husband. And she's quite, quite amazed by this and she's quite worried by this or rocked by the fact that this man can see right inside her heart. So what does she do? What would you do in that situation? She tries to change the subject. And she thinks rather than talk about the controversy of my morality, I'll talk about an even bigger controversy and so she began to talk about worship. What a tragedy that worship is an even bigger controversy than the, the morality of this lady. And she says to Jesus, Sir, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Remember this village, Sychar, is right on the edge of the mountain, right on the edge of Mount Gerizim. We've got a picture here of it. That's Mount Gerizim. You can see the temple at the top there. This is the village some years ago, right on the edge of the mountain. She says, sir, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews can claim, uh, claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. So the question she's raising is this. Where is the place of true worship? Where do we worship God? Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion? The Samaritan way or the Jewish way? And sometimes we ask the same question, don't we? How do we worship the modern way or the old way? And, and in fact, the, the letter to the editor, obviously a satirical letter, suggesting is it the modern way or the old way or the really, really old way? And some would argue, actually even go back further than that and go and try and find the, the, the verses we have of hymns and songs in the New Testament because there are many of them. How far do you go back? Where is the origin of true worship? How do we worship God? What's the true way, the pure way? This is a very important question. Because if we can locate the place of God and where God is at, then we can go and visit him and draw close to our creator. And this is the question that's perplexed people down the centuries. 
what sociologists um, uh, 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 have noted is that in all nations, in the six continents of the world, there is religion. And even in the most remotest tribes, remote tribes, there is religion. And what's fascinating is a lot of temples are built in a similar way, from the Incas to, to the, um, the temples we find in, in, in the ancient Near East, in Palestine. They're built in a certain way. You see, many of the temples were built on high places like on Mount Gerizim. And why was that? It was because people believed that God resided in the heavens, in the sky. And therefore, the higher up you built your temple, the closer to God you will become. In, in and around the ancient Near East and in, in South America, many temples are built on platforms. They rise up a bit like Duplo or Lego blocks on platforms all the way up. And they're called ziggurats. And the idea is, is that the temple sits on the top platform, and on that platform, you are closer to God. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, the Tower of Babel was a ziggurat, and we can locate the Tower of Babel, um, archaeologically speaking. And there are many ziggurats like this, temple platforms that come up from the earth, because of their size, still remain now, like the pyramids, thousands of years later. The temple platforms, and you reach and access the top platform, in one sense... Many ziggurats are like the original stairway to heaven. That's the way you get close to God. The higher you go up that stairway, the closer you are geographically to God, which is why in the Old Testament you'll find the condemnation of the high places. Because the high places in the Old Testament often refer to pagan um, temples or pagan altars that are placed high on, on a hillside where people are tempting to get close to God. But they're not getting close to God through worshipping Yahweh or worshipping Jehovah. They're worshipping God in a geographical sense because they locate God geographically. And this woman believed this. She believed that the geography was important. There was a certain place where you and I could encounter God. Was it Mount Gerizim or was it going to be on Mount Zion? How do we worship God? And Jesus says, neither. He says, worship is not about location. It's not about geography. It's not about how or what. So it's not about these kind of things. It is about the how and the what. And the first thing he says to her is this. It's about spirit. He says this. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says emphatically that God is spirit. He is not geographically limited to a single location or a place. He is not physically bound anywhere because he is spirit. And therefore Jesus says the very question fails to understand the true nature of our God. The more important question is not where, but how do we worship? If God is spirit, how do we worship God who is spirit? Remember, Jesus said, a time is yet coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. You see, Christian worship of God needs to come from our spirit. Remember we said um, last week, and we talked about um, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, 
where it says, may, where Paul says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul pronouncing a, a blessing upon the believers at Thessalonica. And Paul's saying that we are made up of these three elements, body, soul, and spirit. And when we engage with God, we engage with that nature within us that's part of, that, that relates to God because God is spirit. Because God is spirit, we worship him in spirit. We relate to him in spirit. You can't relate to God physically because God isn't physical. You're here. You are limited by geography. Cole Maynard currently is in CBC. It's the only place coal is. I may be on the internet, but I'm not physically on the internet, okay? I'm physically here, and I cannot be any other place because I'm a physical person. My spirit currently is limited to this body. One day it won't be when this body dies. And my soul, my personality, my mind and emotions is limited to this body. The same as you. You right now are in the pew. Some of you may be away with the clouds and fairies thinking about other things, but most of you here are right here, here physically in the pews of this church because we are physical, but we're not just physical. We, are, we have souls too, and we have spirits. And we are unique because animals don't have spirits. We have spirits. And God gave man the spirit because we are the special part of his creation, and that spiritual part relates to God. Which is why when we have churches, we build churches, we build churches with color and, 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 and grandeur. Because we're artistic, we have a, we have a spirit. Architectures tap into that spiritual element in the way they design things that cause you to say, Wow. Art makes you say, Wow. Or should make, not all art does nowadays, but most art should make, want you to say, Wow, and cause a reaction. Good music does the same, doesn't it? It resonates with us because you relate to it on a spiritual level, because God is a creator. And when we create things, we do it on a spiritual level. God requires for us worship that comes from deep inside here, what the Bible describes as heartfelt worship. See, worship's not about singing along. It's not community singing in CBC on a Sunday. It's not about good tunes. It's not even about beautiful locations, although, of course, a beautiful location can cause your spirit to soar, can't it? I love mountains. When I get on top of a mountain, I often say, wow, if I can see, that is. You may be standing facing a cloud of white, but if you can see the view, you can say, wow, isn't our God great? It's about lifting our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our souls and really engaging in praising God for who he is and for what he has done. Jesus said, true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seek. Just being present in the church does not make you a worshipper. You've got to engage with God. It's a bit like going to the gym. Just being present in the gym doesn't make you fit. If only it would, I'll sleep in the gym. But you can't, can you? You can go in the gym, but unless you get hold of the tools and start to lift weights or go on the running machine, you will never get fitter. And as Christians, we have to work at our spiritual fitness. It doesn't just happen. You've got to work at it. Being in church is not enough. We need to get spiritual with the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3, verse 3, For it's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. We worship God in the spirit. Our worship is not fleshy, but it's spiritual. Because God is spirit, we need to relate to him by our spirit. 
The psalmists speak this. The psalmist writes, for example, Psalm 103, Praise the Lord, all my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Worship needs to touch us deep inside. We need to engage with what God is saying through the Bible and what we're singing in the words or praying in our prayers. What else? Ephesians 5, Paul says to us, Speak to one another with the psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Engage with God spiritually, deep down. Connect with him. Paul says elsewhere in the Colossians, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. The location of true praise and worship is not on any mountain. It's in your heart, your spirit, your deep inner self. Why? Because God is spirit, but God also is love. That's what the Bible says. And God wants a response from you and me that's a response of love. He doesn't want zombies on Sunday. Some people think just walking into a church and that's it, you've done your bit for God. Thanks God, I've been here, done it, and I go on and carry on my life. No impact made by what's happened. God doesn't want zombies. God's a God of love. He wants a relationship. When we have children, we don't want our children come up and say, Hi, Mum, hi, Dad, love you, bye. What's that? That's no engagement. But when a, mom, when a child comes to a, a parent and says, Mum or Dad, I love you. Thanks for what you've done for me. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for doing that. I love you, mum and dad. You want that from those children, don't you? You don't want the blind zombie-like expression that often teenagers come through and they kind of pass your life, you know, without even blinking or even noticing you exist. You want real engagement from their spirit. And God wants real engagement from his children. And we are his children. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth to really engage with who he is. True worship is always heartfelt. It always comes from deep within. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, when he came across the Pharisees, came across a wrong attitude towards worship and he quoted Isaiah the prophet who said this, these people honour me, God is speaking, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. We've got to engage with God deep down. We can't go through the motions with God. And as Baptists, this is something we celebrate, that we don't go through the motions. We don't have a liturgy that frames everything that we do. We don't come into church and simply stand there with a book in your hands and recite that book. We try and engage with God Sunday by Sunday and day by day in a more natural way. This is important. The prophet, God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah to the people. He says this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What we sometimes forget about prayer is this. is God listens to the prayer, not of your lips, but the prayer of your heart. You're a bit like a husband saying to the wife, yeah, yeah, darling, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 got, got it, understand it. I do that all the time. I get criticized because I make lots of mistakes and the piano will test me later on and discover I wasn't really listening. My yes was an empty yes. It wasn't a real yes. I wasn't engaging my brain with my mouth. My mouth was just saying yes, dear. And that gets you into trouble. And when we do that with God, it gets us into trouble because God wants real responses from us. He wants to engage with your brain and with your spirit. But when we say to God, yes, God, 
We mean it, and we're not simply trying to have a, get a quiet life. You see, as Baptists, we believe in heartfelt prayer. This is the reason we don't have a prayer book, like the Book of Common Prayer. We don't have that because we want to engage God verbally, and we call it extemporary prayer, which is non-written prayer, which is prayers that you and I make up in our heads or, or, or pray from scriptures that we have already, already know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with written prayers. If you write a prayer and you pray it meaningfully, then that's great. But when you pray a prayer, the same prayer week after week after week, it can very quickly become something that you don't engage your mind with. And you can simply say it. And you've done it. You've done your half an hour. You're an hour, hour a week with God. You are a Christian. But God doesn't want that. God wants us to come before him with openness, to be open to him, and to pray prayers from our hearts, prayers that really engage with who he is. And it can, because of this nature, worship can be controversial. And some of our interest in worship can actually be down to our taste. Some of us like classical music, some of us like rock music, some of us like different types of music. Some like guitar music, some don't like guitar music. I heard a person once told me that we shouldn't have guitars in worship. They said that to me, because the Bible says, do not fret. You get many different arguments put either way. Some, sometimes our, our reaction towards worship can be because of bad experiences of worship. And all of us will have good experiences and bad experiences. Some songs are badly written. And these aren't just modern songs. In my first church, in, um, my first church I wanted to go along to the, uh, the Women's Fellowship uh, every now and again. They used to love a certain hymn. They used to love it. And the chorus of this hymn went this. I want a man. I want a man. I want a mansion in the sky. <laughs> what a really bad hymn. All these women singing, I want a man, and thinking, if only it was about Jesus. And then there's me-centric songs. You know, when we're singing community hymns to God and we're praising God in, 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 you know, I, I, I sometimes struggle with the way that so many songs can be me-centric and the great anthem of the 1980s was Shine Jesus Shine remember that? We used to sing it, we used to sing it so much we didn't sing it anymore because it's become a cliche but the chorus to, to Shine Jesus Shine said shine on me shine on me well actually it, we shouldn't be asking God to shine on me we should be asking God to shine on us because we are a church, we are a people. We are the bride of Christ. We don't stand by ourselves. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be you, me, and Jesus. It's going to be Jesus and us. God and us. We are a community, a church. And some bad songs focus too much on our individuality, which reflects our age, that's very individual. A bit like people want to take a selfie with them and Jesus. Okay? Worship should be more than taking a selfie. It should be taking an ussy, all of us, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there could be songs that are just bad. Some, you know, people haven't thought about it. One of my, one of the least favorite songs that came out of the 80s and 90s was a song, I can't sing it. And, it, and it, the line goes, Jesus put a tongue in my mouth. Now imagine trying to stand in front of a church full of soldiers and singing that song. You know, what it, con what it puts in your mind, the image, is exactly the wrong image because it hasn't been really thought through. So there's going to be some worship that's going to be difficult because perhaps it's 
doesn't exactly resonate. And, and we can all have bad experiences of worship. But then amid the bad, there's the good, isn't there? And what I've learned in my Christian life and what I encourage to all of you is all of us can learn to sing and to worship in spirit and in truth because Jesus makes worship very simple. He cuts through the arguments and the different views and, and gets beyond the location and says the how. When you get the how right, then you can worship no matter where. It's about attitude and truth. You see, even poorly written songs, you can still worship God with them. They may grind a bit. They may think, well, that's not the best way of putting it. But the focus isn't on the song, is it? The, folk, the, vehicle, the, folk, the, the song is meant to be a vehicle. You focus on God and say, hey, God, I'm worshipping you. And when it comes to badly written music, we can say, well, I, I don't particularly like this, but I want to focus on you. Having spent 21 years in the military and worshipped, particularly with some of my Anglican colleagues, you know, using, you know, on a regular basis, the Book of Common Prayer, I struggled with using language that's 400 years old. So I had to say, look, this Father, this is not about me. I'll use this antiquated language and try and focus upon you. Because we're called to worship in spirit. And we're called to worship in truth. Jesus said this, he said this, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in truth. And again, the context of this comes from the picture we get here for Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. Because Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, he says this, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. You see, the Samaritans, in trying to justify their location in Mount Gerizim, they got rid of all the other books that referred to Mount Zion. So you've got 39 books in the Old Testament. They had five of them. Because all the other books referred to Mount Zion. And so they thought the only way they can justify their religion is to get away all the other references to Mount Zion and to stick with uh, Genesis. The problem in, in Genesis, Mount um, Gerizim or Mount Torboys is also mentioned, um, is only mentioned a few times. So what they then said was that in Genesis... All the references to mountains are to Mount Gerizim, but there's 13 different, refer 13 different names for the same mountain. So they got rid of all the other books, all the Psalms, all the prophets, all the other books, and they stuck with the first five books of the Bible, and they explained that Mount Gerizim is found in every reference in the Old Testament because God uses 13 different names for this one mountain. That's how they got around it. And so what they did was they distorted their picture of God. They had a very distorted, limited picture of God. So Jesus says this, he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know because you've distorted what God reveals in the Bible. You don't know God. We never bless ourselves or others by distorting our picture of God to sort our own theology. And so the woman said this, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you am he. I am he. Jesus is the truth. Elsewhere, of course, he says this in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and I've seen him. Jesus represents the Father. He is 
the best facsimile, the best photograph you will have of God. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. He is. He reveals his Father perf- perfectly. They say the old expression that the, the apple doesn't fall far from a tree, or the nut doesn't fall far from the tree. Probably nut in my case. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but Jesus reveals his Father's character perfectly. He reveals the fullness of God. When we worship God in spirit, we're worshipping God from deep down within us. We worship God in truth. We're worshipping the Son of God who reveals God to us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Its location of worship is deep within our heart. Its object is high in the heavens. And the purpose of worship is to lift us to where he is. And its benefit is it helps us to see just how great and high our God is. This is why John writes in the embattled church in John 1 John 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. When you're feeling down, when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling low, a way out of that is to look to God and see the God who made you and get out of your downness and realize there's something greater out there that you are linked through because you are a believer because you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. When we begin to lift our eyes and worship God, we find our spirits start to rise within us and we begin to feel better about where we are. This is why for Christians, worship isn't just an entertainment. It's not something we do because we choose to do it. It's something we do because we need to do it. The Bible says this, worship is a duty. Jesus said, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. The psalmist commands, delight yourself also in the Lord. Psalm 149, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of his saints. Worship is a duty. And we do it when we don't feel like it. We worship God even when we don't feel like it. Why? Because worship is a sacrifice. Hebrews 13 Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And not only is it a sacrifice, it's a way of life. My tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praises all day long, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. The name of the Lord is to be praised. You see, worship isn't complicated. It's quite simple. Jesus says it's about two things, about spirit and about truth, about the source of your worship, deep in your heart, and about the object of your worship, high in the heavens. The Son of God, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. People, let's be a people of worship a people of praise, a people who look up to him who is our strength and who is our salvation. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, O my soul, arise and bless your maker.